This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We have a great guest for this episode, and we have an important theme which haven't received enough attention as we are talking exercise physiology of women and more specifically menstrual cycle and exercise. Our guest has done her PhD on combined strength and endurance training in recreational endurance runners. After that, she has worked as a lecturer in University of Applied Sciences in Kajani. Currently, she's working as a postdoctoral researcher in University of Uvascula, focusing on exercise physiology of women and sport and wellness technology. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Dr. Ritva Taipale. Welcome, Ritva. Thank you, Olli. Great to have you. So, how how is your work at the moment? How do you allocate your time between different projects and, and tasks? Uh, thanks, thanks for having me, first of all. And um, I should add to the, the introduction that I'm uh, working at the University of Uvascula, but I am based in Vogatti, Finland, at the Sports Technology Unit. And uh, in addition to postdoctoral research, I am project manager for a dual career sports technology for athletes program. And our goal is to help elite athletes get a uh, an undergraduate degree in engineering or business uh, with a focus on technology. And then they continue in our master's degree program uh, here in Vuogatti. Uh, so it's a project that is completed in cooperation with the University of Applied Sciences in Kajani. And most of my time at this point uh, actually goes into that uh, educational program and uh, only a small one day a week essentially goes into uh, research on on women and exercise physiology. Mm, sounds sounds really interesting. So dual career sports technology program for athletes is this unique in the world? Uh, to a certain degree, it appears to be re- unique. Um, I'm aware of other dual career programs uh, in the world uh, and here in Europe. Uh, it's certainly a, a focus that has. Um, been lifted to the forefront that athletes need to have or may want to have uh, something else in their life besides athletics and something to fall back on uh, once they finish their athletic career or, um, for example, gotten injured, something else to occupy their their mind with. Uh, but in terms of having a sports technology program, uh, to my understanding, this is uh, a unique program. Yeah, that's that's a good idea because probably athletes have quite a good insider knowledge of of sports and and probably can have really good ideas on sports technology. So it sounds really good. How how many athletes you have gone through this and how many you have have within the program at the moment? Well, we uh, got funding just over a year ago. It's an EU funded project. Uh, so we actually took in our first set of students uh, last fall, and there's 15 that started in the fall. 
Um, and of course, we've had a little bit of dropout already. Um, some students uh, or student athletes, I should say, have already realized that um, combining these two uh, study and elite sport doesn't quite work for them. So uh, at present, we have 13 students and some of them will be competing in the Junior World Championships in Nordic skiing here in Vuokatti next week. Mm. And, and what, what are the level of their studies now? Are they doing the engineering degree or which, which part they are doing now? Uh, most of them are focusing on the uh, bachelor's level engineering or business degree with the focus in technology right now. Uh, but we have a couple of students who have started their master's degree studies because we are able to overlap the basic studies from the master's degree with the bachelor's studies. Uh, and the students then uh, can shift straight into the advanced studies once they get their bachelor's degree completely finished. Mm, yeah, no, sounds sounds really good. And I'm looking for the innovations that come out from the from the athletes who have specialized in sports technology. And if we then move to exercise physiology of women, could you? Could you give us some idea how many researches there are in this topic or how many percentage of studies are done as women, as participants compared to men? Sure. Um, well, I, I can't give a specific number of how many research groups um, are in the world working on this topic or or even a specific number for articles. But um, we are aware from the research that women are somewhat underrepresented uh, in exercise physiology um, and research in general. Uh, but at present, there are uh, a lot of research groups working on these topics uh, related to menstrual cycle, hormonal contraceptive use, uh, uh, relative energy deficiency, uh, specifically in women. Um, and, and as I've progressed in my research career, I've also realized that there is a lot more research out there um, that maybe hasn't been as well cited necessarily, or for example, there's um, challenges with indexing. So if you're looking for female specific or woman specific research, um, you have to look for it and and be very conscious when you when you try to find it. Um, if I look at my own PhD thesis, for example, uh, I cited a lot of research in men, uh, even when I was discussing uh, the the female runners uh, in in the research. And um, I wasn't as conscious of making sure to find the research that has been completed in women. Mm, yeah. So, so you mentioned like menstrual cycle, hormonal contraceptives, and energy availability. Availability. Do you do you see some other important themes within exercise physiology of women? Uh, well, these are the the themes that I'm primarily working with right now. But um, of course, if we look at the kind of the life cycle of a woman or a girl. Uh, we start with puberty, which is a really interesting and exciting and also sometimes very challenging time. Um, mm. And and of course, then we go through the reproductive years where menstrual cycle and hormonal contraceptive use um, may come into play or generally come into play. Uh, and then, of course, as we get older, uh, perimenopause, menopause, uh, that's also quite unique to women. So there's uh, a lot of 
aspects. And of course, I didn't even mention pregnancy. Pregnancy is a very uh, interesting time hormonally and and from an exercise perspective in women as well. Mm, yeah. So so if we go to our team, uh, one of the themes of today's discussion, like menstrual cycle and exercise. So could you could you start from the from the basics? Sure. Uh, I suppose defining the menstrual cycle would be the place to start. Um, not not all women themselves are necessarily aware of all of the physiological changes uh, that happen during the menstrual cycle. Um, and I, I have to mention here that I really think that um, sex education courses when before uh, young people go through puberty should include a discussion of the menstrual cycle also for boys and men, uh, because it's, it's important for them to know uh, from a coaching perspective as well. Um, mm. But for a, for a definition of the menstrual cycle, uh, typically in the literature, uh, it's defined as being approximately 28 days in length. Of course, sometimes naturally, without any problems, it can be a little bit shorter or a little bit longer. Um, and depending on what source you read from, uh, the menstrual cycle can be divided, divided into two to four, maybe even five phases. Um, but if I use the most basic division, uh, we have the follicular phase when hormone levels, uh, reproductive hormone levels are quite low. Uh, and the reproductive hormones that we're talking about include estrogen and progesterone, as well as luteinizing hormone and follicle sti stimulating hormone. Um, the beginning of the menstrual cycle is marked by bleeding. So that's when we have our period. Uh, the period lasts generally um, for example, approximately five days. Of course, sometimes it can be longer and sometimes it can be shorter. Uh, the second phase of the menstrual cycle is defined as the luteal phase. And during the luteal phase, progesterone levels are quite high and estrogen levels are a little bit higher as well. And um, follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone are quite low. Um, and this is the, the phase that kind of precedes the next period. Um, generally speaking, uh, the mm. menstrual cycle is divided. Um, we, we say that it's divided into two phases, but in the middle is when ovulation occurs. Uh, and I, once again, roughly the middle, usually uh, textbooks say about day 14, but it depends on the woman. Um, and ovulation is when we have a surge of estrogen and luteinizing hormone. Um, and this is the, the time at which a woman can essentially get pregnant, plus or minus a few days. For most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time, causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data, introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting-edge next-generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data, a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. 
Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is S-E-N-S dot Fibian dot com. Mm. And, and then how, how are these different phases of the menstrual cycle related to exercise, exercise capacity, and what should women take into consideration when, when exercising or doing, doing sport? This is a, a really good question, and there isn't um, a perfect answer to this question yet. Uh, so there are uh, studies that indicate that, for example, levels of strength or, or for example, endurance might vary over the, the menstrual cycle. Um, but these are generally inconclusive, or they're not all um, pointing in the same direction with their results. So there's a, a really good review article uh, that was published in Sports Medicine by um, McNulty and colleagues in 2020 uh, that gathered uh, a whole bunch of studies related to menstrual cycle uh, and performance. Uh, and its conclusion was that there might be a trivial reduction in performance uh, in the follicular phase, the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. So basically when a woman is having her period, um, and this may be accompanied by symptoms that affect performance. Uh, but if we look at the research that was included in this study um, and research in general on the menstrual cycle, uh, you can see that there's a lot of variability in the quality of the research. Um, not all research has confirmed hormone levels, for example, Uh, it might be based on counting whether or not uh, we're at in the follicular phase or the luteal phase. Um, and, and they may also have a small N, so it's difficult to draw conclusions or strong conclusions from that research. Uh, and, and these are all really well discussed in, in the McNulty paper. Yeah, so, so not much effect on, on performance. And how, how is then like if we talk of female athlete triad and and low low body mass index, low fat percentage? How how do these affect? Well, generally speaking, in order to uh, progress as an athlete to have positive adaptations to the uh, exercise that you're doing um, and to recover properly, you need a, an adequate amount of energy. Uh, so. When we have low energy availability, it's not necessarily identifiable in any specific symptom immediately. Of course, everybody knows if they're really hungry that uh, their performance might have some decreases, but sometimes uh, people can survive just fine. But after we have a, a period of prolonged low energy availability, uh, we can see a lot of uh, decrements in performance, uh, both in strength and in endurance. Uh, And we also see a number of health side effects. So low energy availability, uh, particularly when it's prolonged, can start disturbing the menstrual cycle, the normal menstrual cycle. So we need energy uh, for our, the menstrual cycle to work properly. And uh, when it's not, we don't have enough energy, the level of hormones is actually suppressed. Uh, so for example, we stop having periods. Um, this 
has an effect also low energy availability and and the lack of proper hormonal function also has an effect on the musculoskeletal system, uh, particularly on bone. So um, many times if we have prolonged uh, low energy availability, we also see bone fractures, for example, stress fractures, um, among among other health related issues. Mm. And and how how is the the prevalence of of female athlete triad in in endurance athletes? If if you look like a group of endurance athletes who are actually doing sports seriously, how how common is it? Um, well, I, I think that that it's a, a difficult question to answer because uh, I always think about well, what level are we talking about? Um, and and how are we reporting these things? Uh, so I don't have a, a direct answer for what the prevalence is. But um, if we follow, for example, even the popular media, we can see that it's it's too prevalent. There's a lot of athletes um, that have uh, encountered, um, for various different reason, reasons, uh, issues with energy availability. Um, sometimes it's due to uh, a comment that's been made by a, a parent or a coach. Um, sometimes it's just um, beliefs that have gathered through social media, for example, that I, I have to look a certain way in order to perform well, um, or I, I have to be lighter in order for my to increase my speed, for example. So it's um, it's it's quite prevalent, and it's definitely too prevalent. Uh, I can't give a, a specific percentage on that um, off the top of my head. Mm, yeah, and and how how do you see basically all endurance sport have a really strong incentive to be for women to be too lean? How 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 do you see the situation? Is there any way out of this? Um, well, I think a lot of it lies in education. Um, and, and making sure that athletes know already at a young age that they need fuel uh, in order to adapt and to perform. Um, I'd also think that it's really important to educate uh, young people, parents, and uh, coaches that uh, in order to kind of ensure on some level at least a successful career as an adult, you need to first grow and develop into an adult. Um, so I, I personally always get a little bit scared or nervous when I see uh, a young athlete at, for example, 15 or 16, uh, a young endur- endurance athlete at 15 or 16, um, setting records and um, having kind of crazy success because my, my first thought is always, I really hope that they've got um, kind of the support system around them to potentially pull the brakes or put up the brakes on, um, if it's necessary. And, and unfortunately, as a, as a coach, and as somebody who follows uh, athletics, um, and, and sports in general, I've seen too many cases where uh, we have a really successful young athlete, and then uh, he or she gets injured a lot. Um, usually, multiple stress fractures suggests that something is not um, right in the body. And Often it points to low energy availability. Yeah, yeah, I I see what you're talking, and and I think part of the problem is that if you have a really talented young female athlete, they usually get the 
the most successful coach, for example, in that country, who's usually a man, who doesn't really know about female physiology at all. And this this is probably one of the problems why why it doesn't go really well. Or what what do you think? I definitely think that there's a bit of a communication gap um, still. I think that a lot of coaches, uh, particularly in recent years, have become more well educated about uh, the menstrual cycle, hormonal contraceptive use, um, symptoms associated with the menstrual cycle that may affect performance. But it's still, uh, and, and research definitely supports this, it's still difficult for female athletes to discuss their menstrual cycle uh, with their coaches, uh, particularly if they're men. But even in cases where they are women, I think as a society, we still find it really difficult to have discussions about the menstrual cycle. Um, I know that in some of my own discussions with uh, family members, when I when I talk about periods and the menstrual cycle, then the, there's kind of uncomfortable silence or sometimes um, people are like, oh, that's gross. We don't want to talk about that. Uh, so it's it's definitely a communication gap that still exists. Mm. And and how how would you guide athletes, for example, that when you have an important competition, let's say the Olympics or, or something like that, it it really helps to succeed to have a low body mass index during the competition. But then in the training season, you can have a little bit more weight. How how would you guide? athletes to play with the weight how how many kilos to gain in the training season and how how long can you stay in a lower lower fat percentage what what would be your your guideline well it's a really interesting question and um my the first answer that comes to mind is that i i would be guiding that part of uh, an athlete's training i don't have a, a background in nutrition i have taken some nutrition courses of course and and um read quite a bit of the literature, but uh, I don't have the expertise to give that kind of, of guidance. So um, from a coaching perspective, what I would do is turn to the experts. Um, and, and generally speaking, uh, that means that we would have, for example, a nutritionist, possibly a, a sports psychologist, um, to make sure that the, the weight loss, for example, in preparation for a competition doesn't get out of hand, uh, particularly in athletes who may have a background with uh, disordered eating or, or eating disorders, um, might have a, a doctor, a physician, medical doctor uh, on hand also to monitor that weight loss. And then uh, I would make sure as a coach that these um, support staff individuals would also have a plan for um, what to do after the competition does the athlete need to keep the weight low um, after the competition, or is there some sort of recovery plan that that may be necessary? Uh, but I think it's important to note that uh, in elite sport, in particular, there are situations uh, in which an athlete might need to lean up just a little bit more um, for the most most important competitions. Uh, but it's definitely important that that uh, whole process is not like a coach led. Um, process, particularly if the coach doesn't have uh, all of the tools to kind of do that. Um, and and nutritionists uh, and physicians and, and possibly a sports psychologist definitely uh, as a team would be more equipped to make sure that that's a safe um, and effective process. 
Hmm. And how how are the like the health consequences? Like for example, if your BMI is quite low and you don't have periods at all, is it a long term health? How long can you be in in that state? How how would you guide in in that 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 way? Sure. Um, well, low low energy availability is is kind of tricky in the sense that um, at least theoretically one can survive. Um, quite long with low energy availability. Um, and of course, it depends on the degree of low energy availability. Are we talking about um, kind of a, a few kilocalories per day under the recommended uh, amount of energy for a given athlete? Or are we talking about tens of kilocalories below below the recommendation or the need um, per day? Uh, but at least theoretically, one can survive quite long with inadequate uh, energy availability, but that doesn't mean that they're going to thrive as an athlete. Uh, so some of the health consequences that we can see if we have prolonged low energy availability uh, would be, like I mentioned before, bone health um, often has uh, issues uh, and and we can see potentially more illness, um, fewer quality training days, which isn't maybe so much a health uh, symptom, but um, it's definitely a reflection of, of um, the low energy availability. And, and there's, there's a whole, whole bunch of other, other symptoms that can come into play. Um, some athletes will have, for example, more stomach issues um, or, or problems with uh, digestion in general. Uh, there might also be mental uh, health issues that come into play, more anxiety, for example, depression, things like that. But uh, it's key to remember that low en- energy availability manifests its way uniquely in each athlete. And it, it depends on a whole host of factors, how that's going to be seen in the athlete and his or her performance. Uh, and and I should probably also really highlight the fact that low energy availability is not just a problem for female athletes. It's also a problem um, for male athletes, and it, it seems to be an increasing problem for male athletes as well. Mm. So, for female athletes, there is some some long term consequences, mainly bone health, and then then each individual is is maybe having some some problems which are different between individuals. And and you mentioned also that men have have problems. Could you tell a little bit more about this? Sure. Um, so, generally speaking, we can say that a lot of the problems that we see in men are similar to those that we see in uh, women. So, uh, with with prolonged uh, low energy availability uh, or energy deficit in men, we also can see uh, a lot of injuries and and bone health related issues. Um, I guess. You could say that the difficulty with identifying um, low energy availability in some ways with men is that uh, they don't have a period from which they can potentially realize that, wait, something's not in balance. Um, So that's one of the really cool things about the menstrual cycle for women is that uh, if your cycle begins to be really long, for example, um, or if it stops altogether, then that's an indication that something's not in balance in your body. Um, so your your hormones aren't working as they're supposed to be, and that's that's particularly visible in in young women um, and women of reproductive age who are not using hormonal contraceptives. If your period stops 
and it, it doesn't come back after a couple of months and you're not pregnant, you're not lactating, um, then you need to go and see a gynecologist and, and figure out, is it an energy availability issue or is there potentially some other kind of illness underlying? Mm. And, and I, I wanted to ask your opinion on this, that so basically in, in endurance sports, you have a really strong incentive to be probably too, too lean, too thin, which is, which is even unhealthy. Could we just take away this incentive as having like the, the threshold for BMI that you need to be above some BMI threshold or fat percentage threshold? That we would just have a rule, like for example, in in ski jumping, there's some rules. How light can you be? Why why not add it also in in endurance sports of of women? Uh, well, I, again, I should say that I think that if we have some sort of um, kind of threshold for which to allow individuals to compete, it should be a threshold for both men and for women, uh, because energy availability and and being too lean um, for health, uh, and for performance is not just an issue for women. Um, having said that, though, uh, I think that if, if we go in that direction, it, it, there's a lot of positives about about doing so. And there are uh, governing bodies, or I should say, um, sport associations, um, federations that do have guidelines, uh, they should include a lot of different uh, questions and measures. Body mass index um, alone can be a good tool, but we know that athletes are built in different ways. Um, so some are going to be a little bit more muscular and and some are going to be less muscular. Uh, and that can mm. kind of falsify uh, the information that we want to get Uh, from an athlete or about an athlete's health. So, um, for example, monitoring uh, body fat percentage might be useful, uh, using different kinds of questionnaires to identify uh, tendencies towards certain behaviors might be helpful. Using questionnaires to assess health, for example, or different kinds of symptoms would also be helpful. Uh, but there's not one particular measure that we can use uh, to kind of draw a line about whether or not you are healthy enough to compete. But I'm aware that, uh, for example, in our, our Nordic neighbors, there are kind of practices that are in place to uh, try to ensure that athletes are only going to be competing when they are in uh, reasonable energy balance and, and not risking their own health uh, for the sake of sport. Mm, yeah, good good point from you that it should be for for both men and, and women. And actually, if you... If you look the road cyclists, I think they even have quite many have osteoporosis com when they're competing, and it's quite crazy that they are they are cycling and and actually crashing quite often, and then they have really problems with their bones. So I I think it's a good idea to have the limit, and and like you said, there there would be some some problems with the limits. But I think there's also a lot of problems when you don't have the limits, and I I think the the problems with limits would be would be less than than the situation now. Or what's what's your opinion? I think that these some sort of of screening uh, tools would definitely be a, a good idea in in a lot of sports, um, and 
since you mentioned cycling, I think there's even greater challenges there because the the loading that is uh, on the the lower extremities in cycling is different than it is from, uh, for example, in running. Uh, so there is the potential for even more uh, challenges with uh, bone health in cyclists because they're not getting that that um, tough loading that kind of stimulates uh, bone growth and and bone density development. Uh, so these screening tools and and assessment techniques probably in some ways can overlap uh, in different sports, but uh, there probably also needs to be some unique. Uh, assessment tools or or questions uh, also depending on the sport mm, yeah and now we have discussed a little bit over half an hour so i would actually suggest we start to wrap up the first part and and continue our discussion in the second part uh, do you have something you would like to add to these teams or if you have any final remarks before finishing this part one uh well, I think the, the take-home message from this conversation is that uh, we need to allow young athletes to, to grow into people before we start playing around with their weight. Um, in the vast majority of situations, this is a way to help ensure that the uh, athlete can compete as an adult, for example, and, and to remain healthy. And um, generally speaking, in order to have a successful athlete, you just you need to have enough energy uh, available to develop the athlete. Uh, and that's a, a, an essential part of a, a training program is making sure that the, the athlete is well fed. That's a really good final remarks for this. Uh, this has all been very interesting and relevant. And I'm sure this provides a lot of value for our, our listeners. So uh, let's have a short break, finish this first part here and continue our discussions in the second part in, in which we will be discussing hormonal contraceptives, their side effects, athlete role models, and many other interesting and relevant themes. So check out the part two when it's out. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.